Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, Crosspoint. To those of you who are here in the house and those downstairs in Simpson Hall, as well as those who are joining us from home, glad you're here with us this morning. We are continuing our teaching series. We've been working our way through the entire book of Romans this week. We've landed at chapter 7. And uh, let me just say, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to go there and have it available. Uh, Whether it's paper or digital, it doesn't matter. But you will want to be tracking along through Romans chapter 7 with us this morning. Hey, I got a little bit of a ring here in in my thing, so if we could... Uh, work on that. Thanks, guys. All right. Hey, uh, also, if you want sermon notes, the crosspointchurch.ca slash notes is where you can go to download today's notes. And thanks, Phil, for reading for us this morning. Extraordinary job. You did all of Romans 7, which is a lofty goal, and you handled it well. Uh, so you've probably picked up this morning. We are working our way through an entire chapter Uh, And this is going to be a challenging goal. And the reason why is because Romans 7 is a very challenging text. Um, In fact, it's it's one of the most debated passages of Scripture in the entire New Testament. And so I promise you this. In the next half hour, we will not solve all of these debates. And in the next half hour, I might highlight some of these debates That's all I can promise this morning. Uh, But before we do that, before we get right into the text, into the weeds, uh, I want us to zoom out for a moment. Uh, I want us to put on our wide-angle lens again, and I want to look at the big picture of Romans. And this is really important, because here's the thing, is people who have been interpreters of Romans chapter 7 have often just hyper-fixated on the text, and they miss the big picture of what's actually happening behind the text. In other words, they miss, they miss the forest for the trees. And so today we want to have a look at the forest first before we zoom in on the trees. Uh, you might remember, Paul wrote Romans to a church that was in conflict. Uh, so Romans isn't just a book of theological treaties or doctrine, okay? Paul was actually trying to resolve a tension that was happening in the church between two groups of people. And these two groups of people, of course, were the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish or the Gentile Christians. And much of the tension that was happening was surrounding this whole issue of the Jewish law or the Torah or the law of Moses, the first five books in your Bibles today. And some of the believers in the church would have believed that Christians should continue to live under the law. So they might have felt that because they were under the law, they had a better standing with God. Um, Oftentimes they may have found themselves boasting in the law. They may have treated other people who weren't following the law as second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And so in the first four chapters of Romans, you might remember Paul starts dismantling this assumption. He shows them, you know what, the truth is, nobody has right standing before God. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. Even those people who try to keep the law, because here's the thing, we all make mistakes. We all fall short. We all need Jesus to rescue us and ultimately to put us back together. And it's only through faith in Jesus and that alone that we can have right standing before God. So what this means then is that God has done something new. He's birthed something new through Jesus. He's birthed a new community. 
And he's actually broadened the circle of his family, and he has made room in his family not only for Jews, his first covenant people, but also for Gentiles, people from every nation and tongue and tribe are now part of this new humanity. And it's those people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ have found their way into this new community. So Romans is actually very much about inclusion and embrace. It's about bringing the people of God together because God has drawn the circle so much bigger. And listen, as we get further to the end of Romans, you will see all of this come together because Paul starts getting really, really practical. You'll find often in Paul's letters in the first part, it's very theological. And then in the last part of his letters, it's very practical. Well, right now we're in the weeds of the theological, but he's doing that for a reason because ultimately he wants to get us to the practical. And the practical you'll discover, particularly in Romans 14, is we've got to deal with this problem, this tension that's happening in the community. Well, in chapter 7, Paul addresses this problem head on. And, he, you know, as throughout Romans, he's kind of been working through a problem. He's kind of been giving little breadcrumbs along the way. But now, for the first time, he's like giving a huge summary statement of the problem. He's finally trying to address it. And the problem is this. What do we do with the law of Moses then? Like, do we keep it? Do we throw it out? Do we keep living under it? If we don't keep living under it, then why not? I mean, is there something wrong with the law of Moses? I mean, like, did God make a mistake? What do we do with the law of Moses as followers of Jesus? Now, I realize that this might not be a relevant topic for you this morning. I'm pretty sure you were not pondering this question while you were munching your bowl of Cheerios this morning. You're thinking, i got to answer this question. I'm coming to church this morning because i got to figure out what to do with the law of Moses. I get that. I understand that. But I'm hoping that as we answer this question, everything will come together for us near the end of the message. I'm hoping. Now, I will warn you, though, that this morning's text is going to take some work to get through. It we're going to have to do some heavy backpacking up steep slopes and through dense forests before we can get to our destination. So this morning is really more about teaching, a little less about preaching, and we're going to have to do it all in very much in a hurry. Everyone ready? All right, let's put on our backpacks. Um, but to ease our journey, let me just say this. Let me give you a summary of Romans 7, just so you have it with you. You have it in your back pocket as you're going. It's always good to have a map so you know where the journey's going. Here's the big idea broken down into parts. Here it is. Number one, we all need a deliverer. That is the point of Romans 7. It's, a, you know, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. You need a deliverer. And the law was helpless to save Israel because people are powerless against sin, and this is why God provided a deliverer. That's, that's the whole point of Romans chapter 7. And we'll come back to this in the end. But before we do that, we have to start talking about the biggest challenge in understanding Romans 7. Okay, this is where we get into the heavy work. The biggest challenge in Romans chapter 7 is figuring out who the I is in Romans 7. I would call it the I chart of Romans chapter 7. Uh, and as Phil was reading this morning, you maybe noticed uh, that from verse 7 all the way to the end, Paul starts writing in the first person. He's, you know, he's talking about I. I, 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 I. The question is, Paul, who's the I? And the question is, is Paul writing about himself, or is Paul writing about someone else? Now, we would assume that he's writing in the first person, he must be talking about himself, but that might not necessarily be true. And then to make this more complicated, the other question is, is Paul using the I in the same way all throughout Romans chapter 7? 
So is he consistent with the use of the eye? Or at some point within the letter, does he change it up the way he's using the eye? Well, as it turns out, Paul does change things up, somewhere around verse 14, which leaves us then with two questions. Who is the eye in verses 7 to 13? And then who is the eye in verses 14 to 25? Sound like fun? All right, well, let's talk about each of them. Verse 7 to 13, let's start there. You might be frustrated to know this morning that there are actually three views about who the I is in verses 7 to 13. Some people will say that it's Paul the Apostle. In other words, he's writing autobiographically about his own life. Others would say, and this is the smaller minority, that Paul is writing about Israel. And then finally, a, l- a large group of people would say that Paul is writing about Adam. Now, I won't have time to unpack each of these views, but I, I do have time to show my cards this morning. I lean strongly towards the view that the I that Paul is talking about in verses 7 to 13 is, in fact, Adam. And this is the majority view among biblical scholars. It's nice to be in the majority, isn't it? Anyway, uh, that's not why I chose it. Uh, I can understand. I really can understand why people see it differently. And at a different, season, different part in my life, I, I actually read it differently. I didn't, I didn't know what I know now. But I, I actually think that the evidence points to Adam, uh, but... You know, maybe later in life I'll have to be corrected on this because a new evidence will emerge and I'll realize, oh, maybe it wasn't Adam. So many scholars point out that Paul is using a common writing technique from his day, right? And so sometimes when you read the Bible, things get a little bit lost in translation. This is one of those instances where that may be so, okay? Paul was using a rhetorical device called prosopopeia. Prosopopeia. Why don't you try that? Try saying that. Prosopopeia, right? Isn't that a great word? Sounds like a disease or something, right? Like, oh, doc, you know, I got this foot fungus. Oh, fungus. Oh, yeah, that's prosopopeia. No problem. We got, we got here some pills. Right, prosopopeia. Well, prosopopeia essentially means impersonation, okay? Uh, it, and authors in, the, in that Paul's day would often write about other people in the first person singular in order that they can make a general point. So essentially what, Paul, what the writer would do is they would take on the role of somebody else as they're writing. And in this case, scholars will say, Paul is taking on the role of Adam. He's putting on the Adam costume as he writes this section of scripture. And you might say, well, that's, how do we know that? Well, uh, this is in fact not the first place that Paul has done it. If you go to Galatians chapter 2, Paul does it there. Um, there's other places in the Bible where this takes place. If you go to Lamentations chapter 1, you'll find that it's happening there as well. So why do I think that this is Adam that Paul's writing about? Well, if you look closely at the text, you can spot clues that seem to point out this is his Adam that he's talking about. So let me do a really quick drive-by this morning of those clues, okay? Here's clue number one. The person's problem was with one specific commandment. So if you read verses 7 to 13, the problem wasn't with the entire law. There was only one commandment in particular that was being addressed. And there is actually only one person in biblical history who had a problem with one commandment. And that person is, in fact, Adam. And in fact, Paul actually just finished talking about Adam, if you remember, from Romans chapter 5. And in Romans chapter 5, he talked about the one trespass that Adam kept breaking. Here's a second clue. The commandment is, do not covet. In Paul's day, it was generally accepted that covetousness was the root sin behind all the other commandments. What is covetousness? Well, covetousness is when you covet, you want what you should not have. God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? 
but it was covetousness that caused them to actually break that commandment. I mean, you can read about this in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. What does it say about Eve? Eve saw that the, the, the fruit was good. She saw that the, the fruit was going to give her wisdom, okay? She realized all that it was going to give to her, so they first coveted the fruit before they actually took the fruit. Clue number three, Adam was alive before the law. According to Paul, in the previous chapters, if you read Romans, this is Paul's consistent message, everybody is born into the sphere of death under Adam. Doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, doesn't matter. Everyone is born into the sphere of death. So that means there is only one person in human history was ever alive apart from the law. Who was that person? Well, that person was Adam. It makes much more sense to consider that this is Adam he's talking about rather than Paul. Because Adam was fully alive before the fall. Then he broke the commandment, he coveted, Death came afterwards. Clue number four. Sin is spoken of as being alive in the text. So if you read the text, it, it, it's like Paul is saying sin has a life of its own. Notice this. It seizes an opportunity. It deceives, Paul says. It's alive, Paul says. And this actually matches the story of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. The serpent was crafty. He was deceitful. He was cunning. And what did the serpent do? He used God's commandment against Adam and Eve. He asks the question, did God really say that? Okay. Clue number five. Sin required knowledge of this commandment. Paul says in verse seven, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Only Adam was ever unaware of any of God's laws. Paul knew about God's laws from the time that he was a child. Adam was created into a state of innocence. He didn't have a knowledge of good and evil except for one commandment. God gave him one commandment and one commandment only. Sin only came knocking after Adam learned about this commandment. So that's the reason why I think it's Adam. And the clues seem to point to Adam towards the, in verses 7 to 13. Now, what about verses 14 to 25? Who is the I in these verses? Well, you'll notice that a shift actually takes place uh, starting in verse 14. Paul stops writing in the past tense, and Paul now starts writing in the present tense. And that's a good clue that Paul has begun writing about himself. But you also notice that Paul kind of makes a summary statement in verse 14. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. So this is a clear signal in writing that Paul is making a gear change. He's changing from gear number one to perhaps gear number two. And he's inviting his listeners now into his personal experience. And as a matter of fact, almost everyone agrees uh, among scholars that Paul is writing his own story in these final verses. But what they don't agree on is when Paul is talking about. So some of them think that Paul is talking about before his conversion to Christ, when he was under the law. Other people think Paul is talking about as a believer in Christ, after his conversion to Christ. And there are pretty good arguments on both sides. Isn't chapter 7 fun? Like, oh, wow, this is great, right? One, one day when I meet Jesus face to face, I, I'm going to have a sit-down conversation, and I'm going to ask him about all the mysteries of the universe. You, you, you looking forward to that conversation? Things that you just like, oh, come on, what is the answer to this, right? So I'm going to ask Jesus some of my deepest, most profound questions. Like, um, uh, why, why, why don't sheep shrink in the rain? You ever imagine that, Right? Why, why is it that everything sticks to Teflon, but how do they make Teflon stick to the pan, right? And who is the I in Romans chapter 7? That's my biggest question. Who is the I that Paul's talking about here? 
Well, where do I land? I think that Paul is describing his experience before he became a Christian, when he was still under the law. And the reason why is because Paul actually refers to the law so much in these verses. Um, But Paul now radically considers himself no longer under the law. So he wouldn't talk about being under the law unless he was actually talking about his own experience being under the law. And I also think that this fits with the overall point of the passage. And again, what is the overall point of the passage? Let me go back there again. Here it is. We all need a deliverer. This is the big idea of Romans chapter 7. We all need a deliverer. And to break it down into the points, the law was helpless to save Israel because people are powerless against sin, and this is why God ultimately provided a deliverer. All right, so, so for the remainder of our time together, we've got past, gone through the woods of the I statements. Um, I, I really didn't want us to go there, but we kind of needed to go there in order to get to the end of Romans chapter 7. Um, for the remainder of our time together, what I want to do is I just want to break down each of these points, these three points that are the key ideas behind Romans 7. Here's the first one. The law was helpless to save Israel. So throughout Romans, Paul has been saying some pretty controversial things about the Torah. Again, he's been laying out some breadcrumbs about the Torah. um, And it's likely that many of the Jewish believers, as they're listening to Paul's letter being read in their church, they're starting to get uncomfortable. They're, They're like starting to shift in their seats a little bit. And they might have started to wonder, is is Paul then saying that there was something wrong with the Torah? Like this is the law that God gave to his covenant people. Was there something wrong with this? So what Paul's doing here in Romans 7, he's clearing the air in anticipation of this. And this is what I love about Paul, is because he's always thinking ahead. He's always anticipating what people are thinking. And he's ready to jump on those questions and give them the answers that they need. So Paul is not saying that the law is sin. And he's not saying that there's anything wrong with the law. In fact, if you read verse 12, he says, the law is holy, the law is righteous, the law is good. And not only that, the law served its purpose. And the purpose of the law was to reveal sin. Let's look at verse 13. He says that in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, it's like a magnifying glass zooming in on our sin. The law exposed Israel's sin. It was like a flashlight revealing things hidden. It's like an x-ray machine showing them their brokenness. And ultimately, that was a good thing that the law did. Because until you know there's a problem, you're not going to try and fix your problem. So, So the law played its role in its overall plan, in God's overall plan. But the law was helpless to save Israel. And the reason why is because, well, the next point is because people are powerless against sin. So Paul says this. He says that sin is so potent that it can take a good thing and use it for evil. And this is what sin did. It actually, Paul describes it as sin has actually exploited the law. It manipulated it. The law wasn't what brought death. It was technically sin that used the law to bring about death. And Paul talks about in verse 7, 13, this is, this is Adam's experience. And then he talks about in verse 14, 25, this was my experience. Remember, before Paul met Jesus, he was a devout, God-fearing Jew. He was a rabbi. He trained under the best of rabbis, Gamaliel. He was a teacher of the law, a zealot, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In his letter to the Philippians, you read in Philippians 3, he says, I, I, he brags about keeping the law perfectly. So he was fully confident in his ability to keep the law flawlessly. But now in Romans 7, he's looking back in hindsight, and he's explaining that, yeah, I might have 
kind of kept the law in terms of externals, but I still struggled with sin. See, Paul found that what was true of Adam was also true of him. Paul also coveted. He also longed for what he hated. Sin burned in his heart, even while he was trying to uphold the law. Even under the law, Paul says, I was still a child of Adam. And Paul describes sin uh, in the text here as a powerful force that's at work within him. He says it's fleshly. He says, I'm of the flesh, right? So he says, it's like I'm a slave sold in the market, a piece of meat given up for the auction, trapped by these urges and these cravings. And as hard as Paul tried, no matter what he did, he could not break free from the power of sin within him. You know, and and I think most of us uh, can resonate with Paul's internal wrestle in verses 18 to 20. I I know I can. Let's just read read it this morning. Let me look at it. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I wonder, have you ever felt that? Can you relate to that this morning? Have you ever felt yourself being kind of like pulled in two different directions? Have you ever made the same mistake twice? How about three times? How about a hundred times? Have you ever gone down the wrong path while your conscience was screaming for you to stop? This is Paul's experience when he was under the law. Paul also calls this the law of sin in verse 21. That's another description he has for it. Here's what he says in verse 21. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Paul would say that, you know, every human being born on the planet is bound by this same law because we're under Adam. And because we're under Adam, there's no escaping it. When I want to do the right thing, sin is always lurking close by. And Paul said that back in that time, there was, a law go- there was a battle going on in his mind. The battle was between the law of sin and between the law of God in his mind. In his mind, Paul wanted to obey the law of God, but the law of sin was always there, and it wouldn't let him. It was like in a fist fight, right? It just kept pummeling him and hitting him and hitting him. And sometimes that's what the battle feels like, the battle against sin that's in our lives. But what was Paul's response to this sense of powerlessness? Well, let's look at verse 24. He says this. He says, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? It's a cry of frustration. It's a cry of desperation. Paul, Paul is feeling powerless. He's feeling weak. And, and all he can do, all he can do is just throw his hands up in the air and say, somebody, please, would somebody please rescue me from this battle? Which is precisely where God wants him to be. Which is precisely where God wants Israel to be. Because here's the thing, it's only at the end of yourself that you can actually find God. Did you know that desperation is the first step towards redemption? This is, in fact, the one prerequisite for following Jesus. It is the entrance exam, the one question application. The question is this on the form. Are you a sinner in need of deliverance? That's it. 
That is the entrance exam to becoming a follower of Jesus. You see, here's the thing. Until you know there's a problem, you can't move to the solution. Until you know there's a sickness, you will not seek out a cure. Until you understand how wretched you are, just how powerless you are to save yourself, you will not want, you will not need a deliverer. But here's what also is true. When you finally admit it, the deliverer is closer to you than sin itself. Who will rescue Paul from this body of death? The answer is in the next verse. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Which brings us to the final point. This is why God provided a deliverer, not just for Israel, but for the rest of the world. And Paul tells the Jewish believers, this is, hey, you know what, the, the Torah served its purpose. It revealed the sinfulness of sin, but the Torah was powerless against sin. It could count sin, but it could not counter sin. Something had to be done about the power of sin, and that something was a someone. Who will save me from this miserable body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice he says this in verse 4. Those who are in Christ Jesus, he says, have died to the law. So what he's saying is Jesus has released his followers from the Torah in the same way that death ultimately would release you from a marriage covenant. And so when you put your faith in Christ, you die with Christ. You die to the power of sin, but not only that, you also die to the law. And so Jesus, through, the, through his death and resurrection, has created a new way for his people. Not the old way, but a new way. And it's a new way with a new life and with a new purpose. Paul says this in verse 6. Let's look at it. He says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So Paul's saying this, he's saying, listen, the old way of the law has been replaced, and it's been replaced with this new way of the Spirit, and it is a completely new covenant, and we enter into this new covenant through faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus who paid for our sins so that we could stand before God in righteousness, Jesus who broke the power of sin so that we could walk in freedom and not have to wrestle as we do, and Jesus who also gives us his Holy Spirit so we have the power to walk in this new way, in this new life, with a new purpose. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the point of Romans chapter 7. So, what would this have meant to the early believers in Rome? As they sat there, listening to Paul's letter being read, they realized that if they were re all of them, every single one of them, if they were released from the law, then that meant there were no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. That they were all in this together, they were desperately in need of the deliverer at the foot of the cross where the ground was level. And it meant they all belonged in this new humanity that Jesus had created. That God had broadened the circle now to include Jews and Gentiles into this new way and this new life with a new purpose. So here's the question. What about us? Are we a people, Crosspoint, who are going to continue to draw the circle bigger? Will, will we create room 
for people who are not like us? Will we make space for people who are in the battle? For people who are broken, who struggle, who are wrestling? See, my fear as, as a church and in my own life is that we will draw the circle just big enough to include people who seem to have it all together. Shiny, happy, pretty people. Functional people. People more like us. A cozy little cul-de-sac of comfortable Christians. That's my fear. I'm reminded of the story of a man named Sam Shoemaker. Sam Shoemaker lived a long time ago. And he was a pastor of Calvary Episcopal Church in New York City in 1925. That's 100 years ago. And he was a good leader. He had passion for all the people in his neighborhood. He was a man of the people. He lived with them. He ate with them. He laughed with them. He cried with them. It didn't matter where they come from. It didn't matter what their stories were. Prostitutes, addicts, convicts, anyone who needed a hand, they were part of Sam Shoemaker's circle. Well, there was a man in his area, his neighborhood, named Ebby Thatcher. And Ebby was an alcoholic. Sam brought him in off the street into his church. And Sam said, you know what, I got nowhere to put you, so you can sleep in the upper room of the church. Well, one night, Ebby, in a fit of rage, alcoholic rage, he threw his alarm clock through the church's stained glass window. And the people in the church says, he's got to go. And Sam says, if he has to go, then I got to go. So Ebby stayed. And Ebby got sober. Well, Ebby had another friend. And his friend's name was Bill. Bill worked on Wall Street, near the church. And Bill had the same problem as Ebby. And one day the doctor said to him, he said, listen, Bill, if you go back to the bottle, you're as good as dead. So Abby invited Bill to his small group. It was a group that he called a special group for drunks at the church. It was called an Oxford group, and it was part of the Oxford movement. It was part of the Methodist church. And in this group, they got together, they confessed their sins, they were accountable to each other, they read scripture, they prayed over each other. It was very simple. And before long, Bill was on the road to recovery. Bill's name was Bill Wilson. He was the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. In 1937, Bill Wilson and Sam Shoemaker sat down together, and they rewrote the Oxford rules in the common tongue for everybody. Because the Oxford rules were pretty old and they were pretty difficult to understand. So they wanted to put them in a form that would be accessible to everybody. And as they wrote them, they wrote together, they wrote what were called the 12 Steps for Recovery for Alcoholics Anonymous. And from that point on, God used Sam to start a movement in New York City. And it was a movement of groups where people could come together in their helplessness, in their brokenness, and they could find Christ. And when they found Christ, their lives were radically transformed for the good. After about 20 years, this movement of groups had spread throughout New York City. I mean, there were, there were groups meeting everywhere. There was even a group that met in the broom closet at Grand Central Station. These groups were, were meeting people at the door, at the entry level. But over time, something distinctive began to happen to these groups. As these groups' members began to clean themselves up, they, they realized that they didn't want to stay around the door anymore. And so slowly they began to move closer together and closer inside the church where they felt more comfortable and where they felt more safe. Now Sam Shoemaker, at about that time, about 20 years later, he had already left New York and he went to start a church in Pittsburgh. 
And he was invited to come back and to visit the church. And when he came back to visit the church, he discovered that these groups had become these beautiful, caring groups designed for the people, the beautiful people who were inside. And you know, this so often happens in churches, and it happens in church history, where people have their lives radically changed by Jesus. And once their lives are put back together, they tend to become more educated, more financially stable, more successful and they become more inclusive. And history has proven this time and time again. So Sam, when he came back to visit his old church, he was, he was really disturbed by what he saw in these groups. Where were all the broken people? Why was the circle so small? So what he did was he called all his people together for a conference, and he challenged them, and he, he asked them to please remember, remember, where you came from, and return to where you first began. And the way that he did it, he did it by writing a poem. And I want to read a poem from, from Shoemaker's book called Stand by the Door. And here's what he wrote to that church. He says, I admire the people who go way in, but, but I wish they would remember the way it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help the people who have not yet found the door, or the people who want to run away again from God. You can go in too deeply and stay in too long and forget the people outside the door. As for me, I shall take my old accustomed place, near enough to God to hear him and know he is there, but not so far from men as to not hear them and to remember they are there too. Where? outside the door. Thousands of them. Millions of them. But more important for me, one of them, two of them, ten of them, whose hands I am intended to put on the latch. So I shall stay by the door, and I'll wait for those who seek it. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. So I stay by the door. Friends, God has called us to be doorkeepers. We all need a deliverer. We all have tasted grace. So may we continue to draw the circle broader, to pursue inclusion and embrace, to make room for people who struggle, people who wrestle, to help them find their way back to God so they can experience healing and transformation. May we be the people who put their hands upon the latch to the door to the kingdom of God. Well, I'm going to give us an opportunity to just pause at the end here and to just talk to our Father who is so good, who is so for us, who loves us, and who wants to work in us and through us to reach a troubled world. I'm going to give you a couple minutes just in silence to pray, and then I'll close us in prayer. Take a moment. What is... What is God saying to you today? And how will you respond to God's call on your life? Let's pray.
this morning, Lord, we marvel at your amazing grace. We did not earn it. We can't deserve it, but you give it freely. Oh, wretched man or woman that I am, who will rescue me from this miserable body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus our Lord. We have experienced this amazing grace, Lord. And may we be a people who extend this same grace to a world in need. So God, would you show us how we can do that in our own lives? God, would you help us to do it? God, would our hearts burn? Would they be broken for this world? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We give you praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.